Today, you are going to get a front row seat to the incredible Sharks career of the legendary Mark Andrews. Mark, welcome back to Front Row Rugby. Thank you very much. Looking forward to being here today. Mark, I know that you studied at the University of Stellenbosch. How close were you to actually signing for Western Province? Yeah, it's a long time ago. Um, well, my dream was to play for Western Province. My cousin Keith Andrews was the prop for Western Province. Um, I finished school. My dad said, if you want to be a Springbok, if you want to play for Western Province, you have to go to Stellenbosch University. So I signed up, uh, went to Stellenbosch. And unfortunately, I only lasted six months. I had a clash of personality and uh, probably culture with uh, the current coach, uh, who was the Stellenbosch. And um, yeah, I was forced to go and uh, I wanted to go to UCT, but I was halfway through the year and I was in a scholarship for rugby and water polo. So my cousin, I phoned Keith and I said, Keith, what do I do? I can't play in the soak anymore. It's, I'm going to hit him at training. It's not going to end up well for me. So uh, he phoned me about two weeks later and he said, there's a club in France where he was playing, uh, Uriac. Uh, they're looking for a lock eight man. Do you want to go? So to answer your question, I nearly played for Western Province. I was actually selected for the Western Province under 20 side on the bench from the Stellenbosch under 20 B team. That's giving indication of, of, of the issues I had at Stellenbosch where I was told because I was an Englishman, I would never play for the A side. Quite incredible. Now, 1993 was a whirlwind year for you. Uh, you made your debut for Natal, as they were still called in those days. Talk to me about that occasion. That's pretty ironic. So I ended up um, in Natal by complete accident. Came to visit a mate. Uh, I broke my leg in France. Came back here for about a month uh, to see him. And I was waiting for the next year to go back to Varsity. I was going to go to UCT. And long story short, I got uh, roped into playing for Rovers, the local club here, and for Natal on 20 side. And then um, at the end of the year, I got pulled into the, the training team for the Sharks, who were playing against the Carica final in 1992. But Sean Platford had hurt his ankle. He was a lot. Uh, ended up, he was okay, so I didn't have to play. But uh, at the end of the year, at a rugby function, Ian McIntosh, who was the Sharks coach, and said to me, what am I doing next year? I said, well, I'm going back to Cape Town. I'm going to go to UCT and uh, try to make province. And I don't know how, how well you know Ian McIntosh, but he said to me, don't be a prick, which was his favorite word. I like, well, what do you mean, sir? He said, well, do you think the Western province coach knows who you are? He said, I'm going to tell coach. We've just uh, won the Curry Cup in 92 again. He said, I know who you are. You'll be part of my plans. Don't be an idiot. Stay here. So I quickly changed my plans, ended up again at Marisburg University. And then the side that I that I, I made my debut against was Border. Now, I was a Border boy. It was a school my whole career at Southern College. Uh, played Craven Week for Border. So I played my first provincial game in Peter Marisburg at Woodburn Stadium where I was a student against Border, my old province. And better than that, I played my first game with one of my heroes, who was Flay Sosaki, who was playing his 100th game for Natal. That is quite incredible. I've got to ask you, Mark, uh, playing with a man with the experience that Flace Fasaki had, uh, how much of a help was that to you? Like, what sort of stuff was he telling you on that day? Uh, I don't recall too much because I was pretty nervous, I must be honest. Uh, and again, playing against Border, I didn't want to make an ass of, my, of myself because they all knew who I was. The only thing I remember, not so much from Flace Fasaki, though, was from Robert Dupree, who was our scrum off. I got the ball down blindside, the whole blindside offense was there, so I thought I'd do a chip and chase. Um, 
And I chipped the ball and I kicked it directly into touch, like on the halfway line. The whole crowd went, and Robert Supreme walked up to me and he said to me, you are locked. Don't you ever effing kick the rugby ball again. I was like, yeah, I'm in here. <laughs> I think it took me about five more years before I kicked the ball rugby field. But um, yeah, honestly, that's probably the only thing I remember from the game. He's being tucked on by Robert Dupree for trying to do a chip and chase. That's great. I've got to ask you as well, Mark, later that year, 1993, uh, there was a Curry Cup final at Kings Park uh, where you guys were up against Transvaal. How disappointing was it to lose that match? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, the Shark side then was starting to, well, not starting to, they'd won two Curry Cups, they were an established side. There was an expectation at home that we were going to win it. That one in 90, one in 92, there was a huge expectation that we win it in 93. The difference is Transvaal had a phenomenal side. I mean, 13 of those players who played against us went on to make the Springbok 95 World Cup side two years later. So they were an incredibly strong side. Um, yeah, I, I, I must be honest, I have selective amnesia um, about my rugby career. I don't remember my losses very well. I mean, if you ask me in all honesty, I say I lost the All Blacks twice. I saw a stat the other day that I'd actually lost them 13 times and I played against them 19. So I don't actually remember the loss. What I do remember though from that final was Kurvis Visser and Bali Swart land on me in a tackle and popping my sternum, uh popping my sternum in that game. That's that stands out pretty clearly, one of the most painful injuries I've had. But uh, yeah, it was disappointing. But for me, luckily it was the start of my career. So I knew I was gonna get a chance with if I stayed in the shark side to play in a couple more Carica finals. And indeed you did, two years later, at home against Western Province in the 1995 Curry Cup final. A win in, as I recall, rainy conditions. How do you recall the match? Yeah, absolutely rainy. I do remember Terry Lacroix hitting some great kicks. Uh, he had a very simple kicking style which suited those conditions. I think he had about a three-step run-up. Uh, would have worked in the steady set or one-minute countdown clock there. Kickers have to perform under today. But um, yeah, he was phenomenal in that game. And I also remember I played with uh, Olivia Rouma. But earlier in that year, the 95 uh, um, uh, semi-final that we played against the French in Kings Park, it pissed the rain. It was almost a water polo game. And I played against Olivia Rouma. He then came back and played for the Sharks against Western Province in that final on Kings, at Kings Park in a wet field again. Incredible how it all worked out. Uh, but before that, Ian McIntosh obviously was the Springbok coach, but then he came back to coach uh, Natal. What was it about him that was so special? Mac was an amazing man. Sadly, the late Ian McIntosh and I passed away earlier this year. Mac was phenomenal. Um, Mac uh, brought in momentum rugby uh, into South African rugby. And the, old, the old style it was get the ball wide as fast as possible, go wide, wide, wide. And if you went through four phases, you'd probably score because you'd beat the defense um, on each side by moving the ball wide. So if you look at the clips from the old days, the back line would stand deep and they'd catch it and they'd throw the ball 10, 15 meters to the next runner running and you'd, you'd almost stop and throw the ball to the next guy. It was a very labored way of playing rugby. And when the game started going a little bit professional, obviously it wasn't professional in 93, um, 94 when Max started his whole momentum rugby. But it was, he he'd applied his mind to it and said, how do we get across the gain line? Because you get, need to get across the gain line quickly to break defences. Because defences weren't that organised in those days. So Matt brought about, in South African rugby, momentum rugby. And, and it's, if you look at how the Irish play when the All Blacks were successful, you look at the box today, it's all about getting what he used to call a 15 against 7. So Mac as a rugby brain was phenomenal. What I learned from Ian McIntosh, most of my rugby knowledge is still... The foundations of it come from what Mac taught me as a youngster 
understanding how rugby works. He was also a fantastic guy in the sense of, he used to always say, I judge you in what you do between those four white lines. So remember in the amateur days, the guys used to get pissed off to games and get up to rubbish and, and, and they there were no cell phones and no cameras and no, you could you could be a proper a proper rugby boy in the old days. And he used to say, guys, I don't care what you do off the field, but I care what you do on the field. And that's how I judge you. And if I think back to the 90s, half our, half our side, Dickie Muir, James Small, Caboose, is Kevin Putt. So many players wouldn't have played professional rugby if it wasn't for Mac because he just said, you perform in the field, you'll be my side. Where today it's all about the players are the brand and they have to be probably better behaved off the field than on the field. I must say, Mark, it was quite a privilege. Um, I stand corrected, but I am almost certain that I had the privilege of recording the last interview with Ian McIntosh before he passed. So that was quite a special moment for me. And speaking of special moments, you guys went back to back in 1996, winning at Ellis Park. Uh, how uh, do you remember that? That I remember. Uh, again, I wouldn't I remember most of my wins. Um, for me, that was probably one of the most enjoyable rugby matches I've ever played in my life. So put in context, 95. Um, we played out, got played out of position from block to eighth man, hated two most stressful weeks in my life. Um, end of 95, there was so much expectation and pressure. The game had gone professional. We were not getting paid. It was all chaos. 96, the dust had settled a bit. Um, we now were kind of understanding what professional rugby meant, what we had to do. Uh, the shark side was just a phenomenal side. And if you run through that side, if you ask most shark supporters today, my age, uh, to name the sh- a Sharks team of the 90s, they would probably get about 70% of the players right. We had stability. We played with each other week in, week out. We had competent players. We had talented players. Um, and that final was, for me, was just absolutely... It was a game that, and especially the fact that the year before in the World Cup final and then the Carica final, everything happens at 100 miles an hour. But I've played a few finals. I played in the Super 10 final before that, two years before, the Lion Cup final. I had a bit of experience of playing finals. So playing at King's Park, all of a sudden, I'm not King's Park, at Ellis Park then, um, everything just seemed in slow motion because I had the experience to actually now enjoy it. Things didn't just seem to flash past. The next thing, it feels like it's half time you're running the field. I can remember that game. I can remember Juba game blindside and taking that uh, chip over the top and catching his own bounce from the air, James on the outside, screaming at him. It was just a game that I remember in slow motion almost because I had the experience and the Sharks were just phenomenal. The players we had just made it a fa- probably one of the highlights of my, of my rugby career, that game. Hey, if you're enjoying this video, why not consider becoming a patron? I'll put the link on the screen as well as in the description box and a QR code on the screen for you as well. There will be great benefits for members. Let's get back to the interview. It really was a great side. Uh, I've got to ask you as well, Mark, speaking of 1996 and the game turning professional, there was a new competition called the Super 12. Before that, there was the Super 10, as you alluded to. Similar competitions, but did you feel that in the Super 12 you were playing in something completely different? Yeah, Peter. Um, I don't know how much time we have, but uh, amateur rugby was a joke i've got to be honest so to put to i'm not sure people would understand so in 1993 we go across in 94 we go across to new zealand on playing super 10. uh we fly via singapore because it's the cheapest flights that sands can put together we all fly economy 
So you can imagine some of us are not the smallest. We all fly economy. It takes two and a half days to get to New Zealand. When you arrive there, you stay in the crummiest hotels. Um, you The training fields, you'd pitch up. There'd be no lines because the, the Kiwis had stuffed you around so badly. There wouldn't be rugby balls. Uh, it, it was honestly just frustrating and it was a joke. Uh, you'd finish a game. And then in the change room, your liaison manager would give you a little booklet, the team a booklet of beer vouchers. So at the cocktail function after the game, where all the officials would be in their blazers and they would be drinking whiskey, wine, whatever they want on the house, the players had to give a little card to get a free beer. And when those cards were finished, as a player who created the whole environment and create and, and, and earned the money for the function for the, the game to happen, we would have to go and buy our beers. Um, it was just absolutely, if I look back of how we were treated as players, it was just ridiculous. Super 12 came around, and I think they understood the rugby world, kind of the administration that we got professional. Uh, we flew business class. We flew one way straight to, to New Australia, and then overnight stayed in decent hotels. We stayed in, we used decent buses. We had, you'd arrive at a training field, and it'd have four white lines, maybe rugby posts, probably most times. A scrum machine, rugby balls, tackle pads. You could train. You could you could prepare for your game. Where the Super Ten was an absolute. It, it, it really was a bit of a farce. Let's stay in 1996 because we've seen pretty much ever since then South African teams, whether it be Super Rugby or the Tri Nations slash Rugby Championship, we go to Australia and New Zealand, and it seems as if it's a perennial struggle. Why is it so difficult for our teams to go over there? It is a 10-hour time change difference. Um, we get in a plane, yeah, you play a game probably on a Saturday. On Sunday afternoon, you get in the plane. You arrive in New Zealand on Tuesday morning. Uh, you're jet-lagged out of your mind. You're sore from the travel from Sydney in planes, Sydney in buses. You then have to perform. The environment, the weather is very different. It's, it's easier to go from wet fields conditions to play on a dry field because everything just seems easier the ball sticks better you can sidestep better you can move better where when you go from like in durban on a dry field even in winter you know what the conditions are like here you go across new zealand the fields are wet the ball you gotta learn to handle that ball um the the the, the jet lag catches you but besides that so as you after 10 days i mean we we eventually found out that for every hour of time zone that you cross, it takes you a day to recover. So now imagine you're going to cross, you've got 10 days effectively to get back to your peak performance, but you've got a game four days after you land, which is always a hard one. But the same thing happened for the Kiwis and the Aussies coming across. Yeah, but they were coming to dry fields, easier conditions to play under. The next thing is they only came across for two weeks. Now, as players, remember, we hadn't been traveling internationally before. All of a sudden, the Kiwis and the Aussies have been playing each other, they've been playing test matches and flying to England and France and all the experienced players. We travelled nowhere. We travelled to, to Bloemfontein or, or Joburg or Western Province. So it wasn't really, it's was a whole different cultural thing which we had to understand. The other thing was the Afrikaans boys, I found, struggled the most because they were completely out of their cultural zone. Um, most of the boys ate steak and flace and artapples every single meal. You get across there and the hotel's giving you, well, fish and you don't get steak because they're expensive. So, so just the food was so different to what we were used to. You're away from home those days. You didn't have the internet, um, cell phones. So to make a phone call home cost you a lot of money. 
And, and it was a, just a very hard thing for us to be a, a, on the road for a month with the Kiwi, Kiwis and Aussies. I think they loved it. They came across here two weeks away from their wives and their girlfriends. Uh, South African women are beautiful. The climate's beautiful. Our stadiums are fantastic. I think it's just, uh, I mean, it used to piss me off so much when you speak to the the, the, the overseas players, especially at Kings Park. And they would go, geez, mate, this is the best field in the world to play rugby. The conditions are beautiful. You've got the beach. The hotels are great. And then you have a piss up on the field afterwards and everybody gives you free beers and meat. And that's a fantastic place. I mean, we go across there and we never got that hospitality. We never got looked after. And a month on the road. Uh, it's harder. So the Sharks, we performed better than most sides, I think, uh, traditionally in that in Super 12. But still, it was really hard. Um, so I don't want to make excuses. I think at the same time, New Zealand teams were just a little bit better. And the, and the Aussie sides were probably a little bit better um, or more exposed to playing at a higher level of rugby with the fact that a lot of them had played international rugby and kind of um, brought that to the sides. We, we were still just out of isolation. It was also about that time that Natal rebranded and became the Sharks. Today, it's seen as a genius marketing campaign. As a player, how did you experience that? Well, I can remember exactly when that happened. Uh, we were playing the Super 10 final against Auckland um, in New Zealand. And in those days, they had fax machines. I'm not sure if many of your listeners or, or viewers would know what a fax machine is, the younger ones. But they had fax machines in the hotel. And people used to write messages and then fax it through to the hotel. And I think it was East Coast Radio then had a poll for the, the Sharks Union at our school um, to give their opinion on should they be called the Sharks or the Banana Boys. And I remember the faxes coming through daily. They had a fax machine in the, in the team room. And these faxes were just this thing which was humming all day, um, wishing us good luck for, for that final. And they counted a lot of the faxes afterwards, and they went, okay, well, 80% or 70%, whatever the number was, where people were saying, go Sharks, whatever, and the rest were saying, go Banana Boys. And I think it's a lot easier to, to market a shark in a rugby than a banana. I mean, you can think of all the, 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 the memes that could go around if you lost the final and slipped up on a banana skin, whatever. So it was just a lot easier to market. But they got the buy-in of the public and the tell public first. To say, what do you what do you like your team to be called? I think that's why the Sharks franchise became so strong, is that the supporters felt like they had a say in what we were called ultimately. Now that's very cool. Now, speaking of the Sharks and Natal, in the Curry Cup, you guys pretty much wear the same jersey every season. But in Super Rugby, the jersey changed every year. Fans get very excited about that sort of thing. How about the players? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Initially, we wanted to play in the Sharks jersey. Um, we were Natal boys. Well, initially, we were Natal boys. Uh, the black and white strip was what we wanted to play in. But the professional game, you, you learned very quickly that, hold on, there's a different set of sponsors for your Super Rugby um, setup as for Curry Cup. How does your Super Super Rugby sponsors get mileage? They want to sell jerseys, especially your kid sponsor. If a new sponsor comes on board every year, they want to sell as many jerseys as possible. So you design a new strip, which means that people go out there and buy the strip. And also all the sponsors' logos on. So the players initially would have liked to have just played under the Sharks black and white strip all the time. But you understand very quickly that you're getting paid a salary and your salary comes from a lot of the time from the sponsors and the supporters. And they all have to have to get a bit of the pie. So um, I remember the only kind of 
issue we had once was in the sh- when the sharks uh, amalgamated with border and uh, EP, uh, um, yeah, the EP side, and we were called the coastal sharks. And then we had to play one game in East London of our home games and one home game in PE, and that is a disaster because. I mean, you go away from Kings Park where you've got 45,000 people supporting you who are royal, and then you head down to East London where you had 12,000 people in, in the put. It wasn't great. But ultimately, I think everything came out in the wash by the end of the Super Rugby where we were based in Durban. It was a Sharks franchise organization, and then the strip actually didn't really matter. You were just a Sharks player. Last time I had you on Front Row Rugby, you told me that Joel Stransky was your roommate while on national duty at the Rugby World Cup in 95. Who were your roommates for the Sharks? So my initial roommate uh, from Wall, obviously you got you got paired with guys in amateur days. But when it got professional, uh, Adrian Garvey, the prop, the Springbok prop, and that was my roommate. Um, i got to be honest, if Garvey ever watches this podcast, uh, he will know he was a nightmare roommate. So Garv suffered from a thing called sleep apnea, where I'd be sleeping and then he'd stop breathing. And you kind of lie and then you look and you're like, Jesus, it's like dynamite tonight. So besides the sleep apnea that, that, are, that are, and it's quite disconcerting if you've experienced that, where you're lying there and you're kind of half asleep and next thing the person stops breathing uh, in the bed across from you. Uh, that was one thing. The worst thing though was he used to sleepwalk. So Garv was a sleepwalker. So especially when he's under pressure. I mean, I, the, the things that I could tell you, <laughs> I could tell you, I mean, we were we actually playing a test match. It wasn't a, a, a curry cup game, but in Wales. And uh, I woke up to Garvey bellowing, screaming, um, run, run, but like screaming at full work. I jumped up and I nearly put my head through his, through his uh, testicles because he was standing on my bed completely naked, holding the wall. And he was sleepwalking, but believed the wall was collapsing onto my bed. So he was standing cross-legged, holding the wall up, telling me to run. So you can imagine I sit up in a rush, hit my head into his nuts. He wakes up in a moment. We're sitting there, him standing naked, half a foot from me, me, but he panicked out of my mind. So and that wasn't a rare occurrence. I mean, that, that happened normally right before big games when obviously the adrenaline and things were going in his mind. So yeah, Gaz was a very interesting roommate, uh, terrifying. Um, and then later on, uh, Warren Brosnian, our Bros, uh, who does commentary now, he was my roommate. He was a lot calmer, a lot better. Um, I wouldn't say better, but he wasn't as as exciting. He was just a, a normal roommate. Interestingly, I had Adrian Garvey on Front Row Rugby a few months ago, but for whatever reason, he didn't share that story with me. Can't think why. And there are a couple of other ones which are a lot worse than that. So um, that was terrible, but it wasn't the worst. <laughs> I'm not surprised he didn't share. He actually, Garvey had a terrible incident to one guy at his home. He also slept, walked, went outside and had a leak over his balcony and blacked out and landed on the ground at the bottom and nearly killed himself. Ended up in hospital. So that's continued for quite a while. It's I think his wife is trying to handcuff him to the bed, to be honest. That would probably be the best solution. Mark, eventually you became the captain of the Sharks. How proud of a moment was that? Yeah, very much. I mean, what people don't know is that I actually, in 94, captain the Sharks in a game. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a great experience, purely because I had all my, all my, a lot of my heroes still in the Sharks side, and I was captain. Harry Thune was the coach, made me captain for a game. Uh, I think he saw something in me that I didn't see then. 
I had captain all my sports sides all the way through school. So I captain all my rugby sides, captain all my water polo sides, captain SS schools water polo. So leadership wasn't a um, a, a new thing for me. But uh, it's I've always had a strange thing that if I'm in that role, I'll step up and fulfill that role. If I'm not in that role, then my role is to support the nominated captain. So I had no aspirations to be captain. Um, it didn't bother me. Uh, to be captain or not. Um, but in 2000, after all the guys left, Gary Tash, them left, um, I was asked to captain the side and I, I accepted it and I really enjoyed it. We had, at that stage, nine of our main Springboks had left the Sharks from Juba to Tash to Steve Athen and Johnny Allen. She's all our legends had left. And that's when Bush James and John Smith and Trevor Holstead and Craig Davison, all the lighties had come in. And, um, and I had a, yeah, it was it was fantastic because there was no real expectation on us to do well because we had all these lighties in the side. And funny enough, that year we played in the Super 12 final in um, against the Brumbies uh, and in Canberra, and then we played in the Curry Cup final against Western Province. So yeah, it, it was a great experience, um, and I enjoyed helping. Um, uh, I wouldn't say develop, but being part of of what became some true rugby legends in especially in John Smith um, in South African rugby. Mark, I've read that somewhere around 2001, 2002, you had an injury and you had a chat with a coach at the Sharks and you pretty much got the idea that you were no longer needed or required there. I'm assuming that that coach was Rudolf Strauli. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, Peter. Uh, <laughs> um... I have to correct your facts there. Um, it was actually Strali had got the the spring bike job. Um, Strali had moved on to the box. Uh, I was still on a spring bike contract. I uh, was at that stage quite involved with um, with the, the the Sharks board, uh, the president, the vice president, Brian Fonsell, and they asked me who um, if Strali accepted the job, who I think would make a good coach to the players to respect. I had, at the end of that um, year, we'd been toured to the UK, the Springboks, and I'd bumped into Kevin Pat, and he was coaching in Ireland. And we had a long chat and catch up, and, and he showed an interest in getting back home, back to, to South Africa or New Zealand, um, where he comes from. His wife is a South African girl. So um, I broached the subject with the Sharks management and said, listen, Kevin Pat played for us in the 90s. He understands our culture. He understands South African conditions. Um, He's got experience now coaching in Ireland. I think he'd be an incredible fit for the Sharks. So they made contact, came across, and they managed to sign him up for the Sharks, I think, for a two- or three-year contract. So I was incredibly excited because I played with Paddy. I went to his wedding. I mean, I really liked him. I got involved well with him as a player. But unfortunately, when he arrived, um, it was it was two years. I'd, I'd been with the Sharks, kept in the Sharks side for two years. The younger players... Um, I think looked up to me more than they looked looked up to Kevin Pat as a coach. They didn't know him, they hadn't played with him. So when he arrived, um, and Paddy being about four foot three, uh, had the classic small man syndrome. So when he arrived in the shark setup, there was we were as a, as a tight family. I got on, I mean, I was very involved in the management, decision making, selection process of the sharks under Strali. Um, we got an incredibly well uh, coach, coaching captain in the sharks. Pat arrived, and all of a sudden, I was excluded from being in shark selection. 
in management. Uh, he had a closed door policy. You couldn't walk in and chat to him like good Australia. I had to make an appointment with his secretary. There was no, it was, and unfortunately, he started undermining me in video sessions on the field. Um, and it got very uncomfortable. Uh, so much so that I ended up going to see Ian McIntosh. And I said to Mac, what do I do? Because I'm going to hit this brick. Um, he's undermining his, and so he, Mac gave me some advice and said, you need to go then, tell him as it is. And tell him if he does it to you again, you're going to give him a hiding in front of the whole team. So, um, as I did it in private. Uh, I did that in his office, and uh, he didn't take it very well. Um, he took it terribly, in fact, because all of a sudden, I think through the threat of being humiliated in front of the players and, and press terrified him. And then he did everything he could to get me out of the shocks. So uh, it was he, the guy who I wasn't injured. He merely, when it came to the end of the year, I, my contract was until the end of 2002, uh, he came to me about mid-year and said, listen, um, I've got nothing left to offer. I was 29 years old. I've got nothing left to offer the Sharks. I'm a spinning force. I'm a has-been. Um, I'm not part of his plans going forward. Uh, and uh, they, I need to look. You know, I need to either retire or move on. But my time is done. At the same time, I had the same issue with Strali, um, where Strali was under pressure from South African rugby to not select me because of Negotiations I'd been involved with with the Springboks, uh, trying to secure better remuneration for the players, and I'd made some enemies with uh, the hierarchy there. So I effectively, at 29 years of age, got asked out of South African rugby. Um, got told to pack my bags and move. Thanks for clarifying that, Mark. Uh, it's actually quite a depressing story. Uh, so let's try and cheer things up a little bit. Is there a particularly funny moment that you can share with us from your time with the Sharks? Well, there are quite a few funny ones. I actually, um, after you made contact and said we were going to chat today, I sat down and I, I just tried to remember some of the stories. Some of them are publishable. Some of them I can talk about. A lot of them, sadly, are not. I'm not. But some of the funny rugby ones, and I've got to share with you. So I don't know if, if your listeners or you guys know much about Dickie Muir. So Dick Muir was the Shark Centre in those days, played in the Springboks in 98, 99. Um, an incredible character, just one of those guys who made a team and, and a team culture was almost shaped by Dickie Muir when he's on your side, as naughty as anything, proper old school. And um, But Dickie wasn't the quickest center in world rugby, probably not even in club rugby, but he could read the game and he was phenomenal. He made everybody else around him look great. But um, there was a game we were playing at Kings Park and Dickie got the ball on the outside, uh, two on one, got the ball, was gapping it down the touchline at full ball on his way to the try line to score a try. And next thing he says, he heard this bloody feet behind him. He thought, Jesus is about to get caught here. He looked over his left hand shoulder and there was no one there, but this bloody side of someone running was right next to him. And then he looked over his right shoulder on the touchline and there was the linesman going right past him on the way to the try line and says, by the time he got to score the try, the linesman was waiting for him. So, I mean, that's one of one of the things we took the piss out of him for a long time about. Um, again, another story with Dickie Muir, uh, away games. Mac used to say, not going out to pubs and that. Uh, stay in the hotel, we'd fly up the night before games, especially if you're playing against the Bulls, Cheetahs, or uh, Province and uh, Transvaal. We were playing against Transvaal, staying in the Sunnyside Hotel in, um, in Joburg. And uh, Dickie, being Dickie, had got some of the, the, the senior ex Juba and the Lim and Tash and some of the guys into his room and he phoned the the room service and said, please send six castles up to my room. They were sitting there waiting 
And uh, Ian McIntosh happened to be walking down the passage and he saw the, the, the waiter come in with a tray of castle lagers on his, on his tray. And he said, where are you going? He said, no, it's room, whatever, 211. And Mac knew that that floor was all the Sharks players. So he said, give me your tray. So he said, just give me the tray. Mac took the tray, walked, knocked on the door. But Dickie opened the door for his beers and there was Mac saying, oh, are these yours, Dickie? No, no, sorry. Must be the wrong number. Must be the wrong number. Dickie, but he was just an absolute cake. And as I said, I mean, he made the Sharks. He made us this, in the side of the 90s. It was fun. It was fun playing rugby with someone like Dickie. I've actually had Dick on the show twice uh, before, Mark, and uh, I should also tell you, I had Val Bartman on uh, very early on uh, in uh, the beginning of this channel, and Val also told me a Dick Muir story, but you got the sense that he'd been waiting years to tell someone this story. <laughs> there, there are a lot of other ones I could tell you funny about, about Dick. I mean, he, he, was, he was nice, naughty. Uh, as I say, he brought a great vibe in the side, and that's almost what the shark side was in the 90s. We had fun. We really had fun. I mean, another thing, I don't know, we were playing a Super 12 game and uh, and the referee, you know, Ian McIntosh, he could not stand referees. I mean, they, they really got in his nerves. And um, I can picture the referee now as an Australian guy, he had a moustache, tall guy, bald, same hairstyle as I did. But he refed us in, in the game, I don't know who we were playing. And then we were all flying to Australia to go and play the Australian the League of the Tour. And when we got to the airport, uh, this guy was at the airport as well. So Mac, I mean, uh, Dickie went across to the to the check-in and said, sorry, um, where's Mr. McIntosh's seat? The check-in. And our team manager was checking in, the seat, uh, and he said, where's, I'm trying to think of this Australian referee's name, where's he sitting? No, he's in this seat. And he said, sorry, very good friend of mine. He's always been a big supporter of, of the referee. He'd love to, do you mind just putting Mr. McIntosh next to uh, this, this referee or this guy? Obviously, trying to be helpful, they changed Mac's seats from all the Sharks set up, put him right next to this referee. You can imagine Mac. He's had a full go at this ref, caught him everything, a brick, he's blind, everything. Gets onto the plane for the four-hour flight to, to Australia. He sits down, and who does he sit next to? The referee who he's been having a bitch about since after the game. So Dick used to do all those kind of things. I mean, we uh, there was another thing he did uh, for Nick Mallet on the Springbok Tour, we arrived in France and uh, we had we said to have a cup of coffee, something to eat, and then we were going straight out to train as we landed. And Dickie put two sleeping tablets in Nick Mallet's coffee. That was an absolute disaster. They couldn't wake Nick up on the bus. When he went, she got off the bus, he stepped in the puddle, and then he fell over, fell asleep on the whistle. <laughs> it was, yeah, but that was Dickie. And I'll say it was a lot more fun playing rugby when Dick Muir was in your team. Those are some great stories. Mark, tell us, uh, what are you up to these days? Yeah, no, so I've got a, a renewable company. I created about three and a half, four years ago. Uh, I used to uh, have a company supplying MassMart, uh, Sky, Macro, and Dion. Lived in China. I swore when I finished playing rugby, I'd never get an airplane again and stay in a hotel. Well, that didn't last very long. I spent the next 13 years basically living in China and in airports and planes. And then three years ago, I, um, I created a, a company uh, structuring renewable deals. So I work with um, some big funds, and what we do is we structure renewable uh, solutions for commercial, industrial, retail, um, big users of power, and biogas. So we either do uh, solar systems, uh, we've got a solar farm in Da'a, the fund um, for biogas plants, and then do on-site PV. And now with Lochet in South Africa, we do big uh, industrial commercial batteries. 
Sounds good to me. Mark, let me say, it was lovely having you on Front Row Rugby again. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing some of those wonderful stories. And I hope that we can have you on again in the future. Yeah, I look forward to it. And next time, hopefully, you'll be wearing a Sharks jersey and not a bloody province jersey. But uh, good seeing you, Peter. And uh, good luck. Thank you. It might interest you to know that my wife is a big Sharks supporter. Well, there's got to be some class in your family. Well done to your wife. <laughs>